know, you look at the New Deal. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. was all about money, but it was yeah. the opposite yeah. of the neoliberal agenda. Yeah. It yeah. was about creating a public sphere which created ever greater freedoms. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. know, free, you know, uh, it was about uh, yeah, setting a minimum wage and social security and union uh, union power. Mm -hmm. That uh, and, and a highway system. I'm your host, W.C. Turk, author, artist, and playwright. On this part two of Playtime's Playcast, I continue the conversation with art critic and artist Diane Photos about neoliberalism and the corrupting effects of money in the arts. Welcome back to the show, Playtime. We're talking with Diane Thodos, dianthodos.com. This is part two of, of a really wonderful and important discussion, I think, about, about the arts and politics, neoliberalism, and, and, and money. In the first part, we, we stopped, uh, and, and I, was, I was teasing. We were talking about the deeper thread and thoughtfulness of artwork that is now in peril. And you mentioned you you were talking about about film russian film and and then yugoslav film that you talked about uh, my wife by the way her her grandmother worked on some of some of the most classic art films from yugoslavia wow fascinating love to learn more about that we we will we'll talk about that uh in in hopefully in a later conversation but i was talking about she was also uh my my wife's grandmother was also friends and neighbors with a classic Yugoslav writer, uh, a classic writer, but a classic Yugoslav writer, Mesa Salimovich, who wrote The Fortress and Dervish and Death. Dervish Smirt, I believe, is the Turjava and Dervish Smirt for, for anybody who, uh, who speaks Serbo-Croatian. I've read both of those books. They're, they're both stunningly powerful books that take place during the, the Ottoman administration. But if you transpose them over the Yugoslav communist government, post-World uh, post War II government. They're actually critiques of, of Tito and, and the administration. More, more, the, more the functional administration of law and legality and, and guilt and, and, and all this. The, the sort of calling out of a top-down structure instead of, instead of what Tito's ideal was, was worker managed. But but that speaks very, very poignantly to, to your point about art as, as a critique of society and culture. Those books have, have resonated and outlasted the, the legacy of, uh, of the Tito uh, government. Yeah, you know, I, 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 saw, I saw much of this happening in a lot of the, you know, the uh, Chicago mm -hmm. International Film Festival yeah. back in the 70s had some of this fascinating uh, work from behind the Iron Curtain and in yeah. the Soviet yeah. bloc states. And I found, uh, you know, we have our animated cartoons, the yeah. commercial version in, yeah. in this country, you know, Disney and Warner Brothers. But when I saw these, I was I was getting in touch with something that not only stylistically was mm -hmm. using a lot of aspects from modern art, mm -hmm. but things that came from deep uh, wells of poetic sources, 
mm-hmm. uh, deep wells of cultural, uh, you know, cultural dilemmas. It was yeah. a constant showing of th- a lot of these animated films were showing the contradictions, but mm-hmm. through these uh, very creative symbolic means, mm-hmm. things that were ambiguous enough to not seem like it was a direct critique of the authoritarian of communism, the authoritarianism of communism, but it came out symbolically as a more universal message about human nature. And therefore it has a universalism that goes beyond the specific of its time, mm-hmm. which is what is part of its genius. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Kosinsev's King Lear is so obviously a critique of the power of tyranny yeah. and authoritarianism. And what could that be? Well, there you got your Stalin and Brezhnev, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet it's interesting too, that uh, a lot of the great filmmakers got their start because Khrushchev was the leader following Stalin who uh, was debunking Stalin's greatness and also freed up some aspects of the society. It was a period called the Thaw. The Mm -hmm. Thaw allowed that sort of double message to get through. You could get past these boards that were uh, criticizing the cultural production. And the, the fascinating thing about it was you get the state support behind the artist. Yeah, yeah. And that's something we never had. And, you know, obviously we don't have the Film Board of Canada, obviously, mm-hmm. has government support for uh, the film arts, for animation. So they have a much more, you know, fertile uh, cultural accomplishment in those fields because the government support was always there. Mm-hmm. We don't, we, we have, we're essentially a commercial based animation is a very expensive product to make. In so, Canada, Canada being sort of a hybrid between, between a European system and, and an American system. Right. Yes. And so, you know, you get these amazing films that are state sponsored that are giving the power to people with real talent Mm -hmm, who can mm -hmm. really animate, who have real messages. And yet these were also artists embedded in a kind of avant-garde modernist cultural critique. That's where the Polish poster art was coming from. Right, right. And it was getting its message through these very interesting means. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. and that sophistication is something I've always looked to in terms of European art. When it came to performing arts, when it had to be film, when it had to be dance, when it had to be theater, those were very hard-hitting categories in Europe because it had to respond to an audience need. You didn't have a bunch of billionaires deciding what was going to be important. It had to be something that lived or died on the screen of the stage. There, there was so, also a bit of a bit of a legacy, a historic legacy, uh, or a, even a historic continuum from from the classical period through the Roman period and all of the influences up through the Renaissance and the Northern Renaissance and and the Enlightenment and and all of that fed into that. So you're building, you're constantly building upon that base. For better or for worse, here in the United States, we've eschewed and borrowed uh, alternately from from that, that base and that historic legacy. But there's also been this, we want to do it ourselves. We want to reinvent the wheel. This is how we see the world here in America. Again, for, for better, for better or for worse. That that has 
that has led us to where to where we are now. I'm, I, I want to throw throw a little bit of a curve at you here, a little bit, because I don't want to let the left off the hook either uh, in this as as a reflection or as a, a bipolar aspect of neoliberalism and neoliberalist thought. The Brooklyn uh, the Brooklyn Museum announced the creation of two new roles and revealed their inaugurators. Art News reports. Ajua Jones de, uh, de Alameda will serve as a deputy director for learning and social impact. She is tasked with creating a sustainable long-term strategy for engaging audiences, one that, that addresses global themes such as mass criminalization and climate change while remaining connected to the surrounding community. I would love, I would love your thoughts on that because First of all, there's there's an activist bent to to this new position, and that's always been important in in the arts, overtly or subversively or 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 quietly. Well, as or, a symbolic position, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the the idea that these things become the focus and engaging a community or, or engaging segments of the community based upon this through the arts or an arts organization or an arts institution, rather than maybe as, as a grant or, or, you know, a, a grassroots effort to, to support these issues via the arts, which would, which would be very, very different structurally. Um, I, I'd love, I'd love your thoughts on that a little bit. Well, you know, this is, this is quite a profound uh, issue. Because when you look at, for example, the German Expressionists, especially mm-hmm. the work following the First World War, yep. you look at Otto Dix's war series, and mm-hmm. he was somebody who fought in that war, and he did so with idealism and vigor when he began. Yeah. What does it end up being by going through that experience? It ends up being the, the destruction of the South. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and the work shows it from the actual experience. And that's, you know, that's, I guess that's the hazard of chance that he was an artist at the beginning of the, uh, the first world war. He lived through the experience and then this is what results. And, and then uh, it, it comes back again when world war II begins and he's persecuted by the Nazis. It's one thing to say, uh, I'm going to consciously express that war is bad mm-hmm. and make art about it. It's another to have this profound psychological basis of, of how shattering, how psychologically shattering the mm-hmm. actual experiences. Mm-hmm. And this, this is the same thing that you find in uh, certain art that artists that are called feminist. You look mm-hmm. at uh, Louise Bourgeois, the patriarch, uh, patriarchal aspect of her family, or you know Alice Neal. You mm-hmm. could look at Alice Neal in that respect. And it's more, uh, it, it has a lot to do with the currents of history and the personal history and the social history coming together. And you see the fusion of that expression and its meaning in the suffering or the in, the inquiry into these deep portraits that Neil presents, right. or uh, the destruction of the father and the um, essentially the trauma mm-hmm. that you see in Bourgeois, Louise Bourgeois' work. You know, I don't know that she ever wanted to create an initiative where you help young women artists become, you know, better known in society. Her, her example may have been in a, some, a model that could set a, set a pathway for that, mm-hmm. you know, via what curators and museums accept. So I think 
On the one hand, it's, it's one thing to make the statement of your political goals because of the political environment you're involved yeah, in. Yeah. And, and listen, you know, I'm I'm very involved in politics yeah. in going out and being in protests. I've been in 90 protests since since Trump came into power. You know, and I make I'm making art all the time. It helps me express mm-hmm. my state of mind and, and where it's at and what I'm feeling. But at the same time, I'm realizing I uh, if fascism's on the horizon, I better get to work yeah. and, and do the best I can to stop it. When you see the destruction of what happened through the work of the German expressionists, mm-hmm. Uh, what it's like to live in such an unstable society. Art becomes absolutely critical to expressing that, the Mm -hmm. instability of what it felt like to be an avant-garde artist in an authoritarian Polish or Russian Mm -hmm. city, Mm -hmm. and the art finding the way to express it and reach its audience. Is is neoliberalism, is that a way of, of, of breaking that cycle of artistic activism and artistic voice? Well, neoliberalism puts everything in terms of asset value. Sure. Absolutely. And, and, Absolutely. and so therefore the subject is But gone. that's not by mistake. So, that, society that by doesn't design. exist. Yeah, I mean, society doesn't exist and history doesn't exist. Yeah. So yeah. the problem is neoliberalism creates a, this ultimate rupture mm-hmm. with memory, history, <laughs> the expressive point of art, the psycho psychological basis for, mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. The, the psychotherapeutic basis. I mean, you know, we use the, these more technical terms, but let's face it, you know, Otto Dix found it utterly therapeutic, mm-hmm. but he wouldn't have put it in those terms in his own times. Mm-hmm. But we, we tend to use this professionalization of categories. That's part of the neoliberal trend as well. We don't merely ascribe it a, a, to being a having humanism and mm-hmm. uh a kind of emotional necessity yeah, yeah. that we did but maybe, in the past. Maybe that, that ideology forces what we were talking about the, the Brooklyn Museum and and their outreach to engage audiences on on social themes, global, global social themes, mass criminalization and climate change. But really can can we look at that as as a reaction to the forces on the other side? And wouldn't it be better if they were, instead of saying that they want to address these specific issues, that they focus on supporting artists who uh, who focus on those issues? Well, you know, it's always for the good to, to have greater knowledge. Yeah. It's always yeah. to the good. I mean, um, one of the be- best talking points you can make about the, mm-hmm. the catastrophe of climate change that is right on the doorstep here mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is that it's going to, these feedback loops are going to affect the next 200,000 years. Yeah. This yeah. Anthropocene yeah. we're going through is going to affect the next 200,000 years. Mm-hmm. Now, how does that become expressed in the best way possible mm-hmm to ward off, you know, signal the danger. I think it takes a powerful art that's able to engage its audience in what it feels like. For example, I was watching a program yesterday about groups of photographers that are filming these refugees that are fleeing areas um, that where there's war and a lot Mm -hmm. of the war is happening because of climate change, because Mm -hmm. it's destabilized Mm -hmm. the societies. But, you know, I can give you all the facts you want, 
but the stories are the things with power that really grip you. Absolutely. Uh, and, and so the, the question remains, what, what is the power of this? What is the vision of this curator to go beyond the codifications of what yeah. signifies importance? Is it a codification that's dictated by, you know, a political agenda? Mm-hmm. which, you know, it's fine within the context of a political agenda. But when we're talking about art, are you getting to something that can express the, the, the special uh, power of human contact and communication Yeah, that, yeah. It, that it alone can really do? That, for example, I know what it feels like that authoritarianism, that conflict of being in the Soviet Union, when I see Andrei Tarkovsky's work, mm-hmm. I know what that feels like because it, the, the form and the feeling are utterly fused. Are we getting art that is just kind of passing off the message in a simplistic way? Or are we getting art that, that's going to actually have a transformative effect, even on a small group of people, mm-hmm. to bring about that awareness? Mm-hmm. You know, the stories of the refugees are extremely powerful. That could be transformative. Or do we get curators that are going to actually, do we have, do we even have enough artists that really have that capacity? That's another question. So I, I, I wanted I wanted to bring this into the mix, uh, especially in, in light of, of my earlier question. Catherine Martin, Ireland's Minister of Tourism, uh, Culture, Arts, Sport and Media on January 6th initiated an online consultation aimed at soliciting opinions regarding the creation of a basic income plan for a number of the country's artists. The scheme, which which Martin described as a once-in-a-generation policy intervention, is meant to assist those working in fields of arts, culture, audiovisual, and live performance and events who suffered economically as the global COVID-19 surged in the country. The program would cover 2,000 artists and culture workers for a span of three years. The government has earmarked 25 million euros or about $30 million uh, for the plan, which is expected to go into force later this winter. The online consultation runs through January, blah, blah, blah. Martin emphasized the importance of aiding artists in continuing their work. The minister is conscious of the value of this sector Uh, that the sector brings to all Irish citizens, said her office in a statement, the importance of Irish culture, Irish art, and Irish production as a whole cannot be understated. It contributes to individual and societal well-being, as well as contributing to Ireland's reputation as a country with a rich cultural history and output, which which brings up the the follow-up question to you is, rather than fight neoliberalism with old world weapon. We fight neoliberalism using neoliberalism. In, in other words, money is, is the way to, to help win the, this culture war. Do you, uh, does that make sense? Well, I, I think money is, it's kind of a wild card. It can be yeah. used for, let, let, you know, you look at the New Deal. Yeah, I mean, that yeah, was all yeah. about money, but it was yeah, the opposite yeah. of the neoliberal agenda. Yeah, It was about creating a public sphere, which created ever greater freedoms, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, free, you know, uh, it was about uh, yeah, setting a minimum wage and social security and union, uh, union power mm-hmm. uh, and a highway system, all publicly funded. That was not about, you see, the difference is you can use money, but not money that's profit seeking. 
The people who are setting up this grant program are not saying, and you artists have to give us a bunch of your works and we got to be able to sell them to make back everything we spent on you plus interest. They're not doing that. Mm-hmm. You see, mm-hmm. when it's you know, UBI, you're going into the public realm. Mm-hmm. When it's universal basic income, you're actually feeding the real economy and the real society and the real culture mm-hmm. because it's not rent seeking. It's not saying I'm going to take a royalty on what you produce and make it my intellectual property because mm-hmm. I'm funding it. Mm-hmm. It's not money per se. It's it's the that everything is reduced to asset value. Yeah. It's it's that it's that your net worth as an individual are what you got in your bank account, uh, how much real estate you own, how many stocks you have. That's your value. It's different from saying Alice Neal's estate was not worth very much at one time and mm-hmm. suddenly it's worth a whole lot because yeah. the market suddenly decided yeah. it, it was going to be a blue chip <clears throat> item. But the point is it had tremendous human and social value mm-hmm. even before it ever had those things. Mm-hmm. Who, who chooses between the artist that receives UBI and, and an artist who doesn't receive UBI? Um, well, you which... know, th- th- yeah, th- this, is, this, is, this is where organization comes in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the society has to organize itself in mm-hmm. such a way as to fight against the neoliberal agenda, because the neoliberal agenda is only interested in the, the, the accumulation of wealth for an ever smaller shrinking number of people. Yes. It can, it, it, by its very nature, it cannot reverse what that is. Yeah. It cannot reverse what that is. The only way society can save itself is by organizing against it. And a very simple example are all mm-hmm. the strikes. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the uh, these are non-union places, but mm-hmm. the workers are going out on strike mm-hmm. and they're getting what they uh, they want from their bosses, but only as long as there's a labor shortage. Yes. Once that le- once you know the pandemic's over and uh, everyone has to go back mm-hmm. to work or whatever. It's going to go right back to the same formula where the bosses are going to try to extract value, take away pensions and healthcare programs. You have, you have to organize a union yeah. to force collective bargaining rights. To organize that union, mm-hmm. you have to organize your political system to respond to people's yeah. needs. Which just, to- as an, just as an aside, uh, I, I think it's important <laughs> to, to make this observation here, what you were talking about. Is there is there really a labor shortage in this country? Because I've seen tactics in the corporate world that force, in retail in particular, that there are chains that are closing stores, but they're holding on to the employees. And in other words, they're not, they're not allowing those employees to, to go off. They're holding them a, a, as a tacit threat, basically, to other employees in other stores. Don't ask for a raise. Don't ask for this. Don't ask for that. Well, yeah, because, yeah, 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 yeah. So, That's the antitrust stuff all, all over again. It's like precisely. barring people from uh, working in the same sector for a competitor. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And that that's uh, the one part of those neoliberal rules that are inscribed I think it was during the Reagan years or something. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, it's fascinating to find out, and this is 
all secret. You know, when you read Dark Money by Jane Mary, you, you find out all the actors. This has been mm-hmm. secretly slipped in yeah. under the door that this is the same kind of capitalism as we had before. No, mm-hmm. it's not. Mm-hmm. Not at all. Financialization uh, yeah. ex- to the extreme. This is where you get private equity firms that go in and gut perfectly healthy, yeah. you know, businesses mm-hmm. to extract the capital and concentrate yeah. the wealth into just a few hands. And by the uh, way, those. Those people, those venture capitalists who had, and and I I did a I did a story um, about or private the, equity capital. Pri- when you hear the yes. word private equity, think of vultures circling above you, ready indeed, to tear indeed. your flesh off. Private equity firms have stripped and destroyed the capacity for the working class and businesses to function in this country. And it is profitable, led, profitable right, right to monopoly companies. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and this goes back to. Uh, uh, Bain Capital that closed the Sensata factory in uh, in Northern Illinois here, which was which was a very profitable company and led to the complete economic collapse of mm-hmm. of an entire community uh, in Northern That's Illinois. That's right. Yeah, but, the, and, the rust belt is mighty rusty. Yeah, and by by the way, those those same people, <laughs> those same vulture capitalists, venture capitalists, are are exactly the same people that are now promoting or teasing civil war in this country in order to if if they can't if they can't run it and siphon off the cash from this country the way that they want to and and Trump leads this uh he's not exclusive to it and there's a lot of uh, a lot of Democrats that that are all supporting the corporate Democrats who are but fighting Nina preci- Turner and uh, you know precisely mayor- precisely but yeah. but Trump and Charlie Kirk and and all these people that that are teasing this idea of of civil war in this country are precisely the people who profited from venture capitalist schemes in the beginning and now they just want to apply it to the United States if they can't get themselves back into power where they have control of the levers of of the economy. Yeah, you know, that's a fascinating point to bring up because it is about the same thing as our Weimar moment. I mean, what we're having now is is, um, a very interesting moment because, you know, the reason Hitler ascended to power was because of the Great Depression, you know, Mm -hmm, uh, the mm -hmm. collapse in 29. You had a fragile economic system previous to that. Mm -hmm. You know, you had all the reparations to pay uh, for the Versailles Treaty. And and those were very onerous in the the years following the First World War. So the Germans never forgot how austere and and difficult those years were. Yeah, Yeah. And so when the Great Depression comes along, what do we get? We get our banks here in the United States that have lent to Germany suddenly having their cash crunch and they want to extract that money out of the German economy. Well, <laughs> they're going through their own crash, too. So what do the people do? They latch on to Hitler because they don't want to go back to what was uh, the austerity of the Versailles Treaty. And that's mixed in with all the nastiness of the xenophobic anti-Semitism that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Germany was known for. It was in abeyance during Weimar era, and then suddenly it came back with a vengeance. And what you're seeing actually with Hitler is the business class merging with 
the fascist political forces. And the reason why it happens, the business and military classes and and operatives in that realm Mm -hmm. wanted to, there was a strong communist and socialist parties in Germany as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the point was they wanted to destroy the working class for business interests, and they were going to employ the power of the fascists in their parliament to destroy the working and socialist movements, because that was their interest is bringing down the cost of uh, the wages. And so, well, and so is, yeah, well, is so neoliberalism. Fascism is, is, yeah. is, fascism is the favorite government yeah. of corporate control is what it's saying. And that's, it's, it's the same thing today. I mean, it's, it's too difficult for corporations to uh, cope with people coming up from underneath and trying to appropriate the government back to the people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They don't want that. So mm-hmm. they will uh, align with the most extreme reactionary, uh, conservative, not just conservative, but fascist forces, because mm-hmm. it's easier to make profits if you can control the public that way. It's do, easier. Do you think that that was, that that was a, that, that Nazism or the Nazi regime was, was a template, a, a learning post, I guess, for, for neoliberalism? Because they're, they're very much they're very much patterned almost identically. It's just that neoliberalism has, has done it on graftier scale, on a greedier scale with with without regard to borders as opposed to as opposed to Nazism, which was uh, which was concentrated on Germans uh, Germany's borders. But they also have taken a very, similar tact with with regards to to the arts that Germany and and the Nazis set out to to declare art as uh, as uh, uh, degenerate decre- art degenerate degenerate yeah. art the modernist movement and yeah. the neoliberals have have learned not to be so upfront or outspoken but the the way that they they also come to things like racism and sexism that they they kind of talk around the issue or they talk under the issue or 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 with couched or or coded words and coded speech that 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 is also the template that they're applying to subverting the arts forcing the arts to become ever more activist or uh, activist oriented or just negating the arts or Overinflating the arts as a means of of destroying culture it. War? In yes, yes, very much. The, cult, the culture wars, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it's interesting you bring this up because um, when you look at you know neoliberal ideology and economics comes out of Milton Friedman mm-hmm, and Hayek, mm-hmm. and what it is is an ideological overlay of what they envisioned they wanted for the society that government should not intervene in yeah. uh what corporations want they shouldn't be regulated they should be allowed to uh you know have markets uh, that are completely unbounded by any rules or regulations essentially uh the idea was and also part of the neoliberal ide- ideology is to go back to tradition, the family, mm-hmm, the traditional mm-hmm. nuclear family with the, the male, uh, you know, it, I would say it wasn't meant to be a vision of fascism, mm-hmm, but it mm-hmm. certainly has led to the creation of fascism. Yeah. 
because what it has done is gutted the working class of all of its power. <laughs> now, when you gut the working class of its power and government is working only for corporations and the profit-seeking uh, basis and having the whole society rigged for that, well, obviously, you're getting, you're not having the markets take care of the society. The markets are taking care of a tiny number of people at the top. So it, the, the claim that these neoliberals made that everything would work out if we just let the markets be free was totally false. Mm -hmm. So even their intentions as being, you know, about freedom, personal freedom and this and that ended up being the reverse. How much personal freedom can you have if you're dying from cancer and have no health insurance, how much personal freedom can you have if your cost of housing is so crazy high because you're letting corporations up the price yeah. that you become homeless? You don't have freedom. Yeah. How much freedom do you have if you're, you're date raped and you have to carry a, a pregnancy to term mm -hmm. and your whole career is gone mm -hmm. uh, or, or you have a, a problem with your contraception? You know, it's like the idea uh, of, of this being a decent and civilized way to be turned out to be incredibly false. And yeah. all that all that smoke and mirrors has been brushed away and we're seeing the truth. And, you know, <clears throat> I, I would say that the intentions are nothing like what the results are, that this is uh, neoliberalism has ended up being essentially uh, the breeder of proto-fascism and fascism itself. And that's why you're getting, you know, people like um, uh, Liz Cheney suddenly being also shocked. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, she, she uh, essentially, they've incubated the egg that gave birth to this monster. Yeah. They did. And, and now they're trying to rein the monster in. Right. And, and they can't because it's unleashed forces that have gone right into, mm -hmm. played right into the hands of a, a fascist formulation, essentially. And this is what happens. Like when you have, we've had a slow motion depression ever since mm -hmm. 2008. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing that happened in, in 29. The stock market crashes. Suddenly uh, life looks really grim and dim. Mm -hmm. Suddenly you we're seeing the, the wealthy and the powerful do okay. And everyone else is just getting, uh, you know, thrown in the garbage. Yeah. So they'll yeah. go for the strong man because of the promises, because they're that desperate. As, as Michael Moore would say, how pitiful is it that you have to. That, Wasn't that millionaires and billionaires during, yeah, during the great depression who were, uh, who were trundling across the, uh, the dust bowl <laughs> in, in the, uh, during the depression. I wanted to ask you this because we're, We've almost talked for two hours. I mean, it's, it's I'm, I'm, this is this is totally my vibe. I, I get it. <laughs> I love to talk about this. Absolutely. And, and you're great to talk with. Probably the biggest underreported art scam story involved Damien Hurst and his diamond encrusted skull. I don't know if you heard about this. Damien Hurst admits to a spot of skullduggery over a 50 million pound. That's the money pound, not the not, not the weight pound. Uh, mystery sale of diamond artwork. And this is from the Telegraph, uh, Anita Singh. When Damien Hurst claimed to have sold his diamond encrusted skull for a st staggering 50 million pounds, questions were asked in the art world. Who are the anonymous investors who had stumped up the full asking price? Why had they paid in cash, ensuring that there was no paper trail? Now, Mr. Hurst has provided the answers. Uh, he was one of the mystery buyers after he became frustrated that nobody else wanted to snap up his masterpiece. Moreover, the skull is languishing in a storage unit in London, London's Hatton Garden, a far cry 
from the days when it was exhibited around the world and drew huge crowds. In an interview with the New York Times, Mr. Hurst confirmed that the skull continues to be owned by him, the White Cube Gallery, and other investors. My impression of Damien Hurst is he's nothing more than a self-aggrandizing scam artist. Yeah, what, what he essentially did by buying his own artwork for 50 million pounds should be considered fraud. And if, if I bought and sold my own car and tried to pawn it off as a sale to someone else, I'd probably go to jail. Well, you know, it's price fixing. This is it, a price fixing deal. And it, it's, it it's, it's what's been go- yeah, it's what's going on in the auctions all along. Uh, I remember somebody, t- uh, you know, um, some friends of mine, Marsh and Granville Specs, telling me, you know, because they bought some of the art by, mm-hmm. you know, Mazelitz and uh, Fetting and some of the uh, uh, the neo-expressionist mm-hmm. wild ones, uh, German artists uh, mm-hmm. from the 1980s, some of their uh, yeah, important works. And they noticed that at auction, this is how the price fixing happens, is that you you get a collector who's bought a whole lot of a certain artist's works, maybe for $10,000 a pop. Mm-hmm. And then they'll take a piece of that work and put it up at auction and put a $100,000 tag on it. Then the it doesn't sell. But in the next year, they'll put up a different piece of artwork from the same artist that they've been collecting. Mm-hmm. And uh, they'll have the catalog from previous year showing, oh, that was $100,000. Well, this one's also. Mm-hmm. So it's creating a track record of value that that did not evolve through an auction market system that was based on the evaluation of, of mm-hmm. how much it was really worth. This was mm-hmm. the a price fixing uh, mechanism. And that's, you know, as more money started to enter the art market and more demand started mm-hmm. to enter, you have the, essentially it's like a kind of fictitious capital, fictitious money yeah. in the yeah. creation yeah. of that value. And Damien Hurst is simply proving that he's an operative on the highest level in in terms of doing that. It's a price fixing of the asset value. And it also might be a means by which he's trying to like artists, like like, uh, collectors who want to keep the asset value of uh, the artists that they are collecting high, keep them in a market range where they even might have shadow buyers purchasing it. Yeah. at auction to keep it high in the in in the public view uh of, of what its value is but it, it's a total it could be a total sham in other words you know he's buying it back from himself to keep that that uh valuation high mm-hmm. he doesn't want to see his market drop yeah much like much like his his nft scam you write we'll finish with this because i i thought it was stunningly brilliant. This is from your uh, your article that we'll post uh, we'll post a link to in the notes below. Uh, you but you write this abolishing the past and denying that there is no alternative for the future means we are forced to be struck with an eternal present. Mass entertainment demands attention to a never-ending present. The next program in the serial, the next major league football game, the next blockbuster movie or the next new art sensation. Uh, I'd love you to, to explain that a little bit because I, th- I thought it was, it was a, uh, it was a powerful, powerful statement on your part. Well, you know, it, it's like, what's going to break the spell will be uh, an alternative consciousness, a historical consciousness. Yeah, and yeah. that's not allowed to happen. You can only pertain to asset values. Society yeah. does not exist. Yeah. That's yeah. a very important part of the neoliberal ideology. And, and we see this, we see this with, with sort of this avalanche of, 
of constant culture, the, you know, the, 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 the fast NFT market, the fast TikTok video that is, is, goes viral today and is forgotten tomorrow. Yeah, and um, it, creates, it creates a commodity stream. It, you know, the, point, the important thing is it creates a revenue stream. Yeah. The revenue stream is what the real subject and focus is. You know, if you want to find it creates, out more, it creates actually a revenue tidal wave that ha- that has to crash at some point. Who, who's making the real revenue on TikTok? Who's yeah, who's making yeah. the real revenue behind you know the amassing of a certain artist's work that's cornered the market like pork bellies or whatever? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I will recommend this. A very important name to look at is Wendy Brown. Mm-hmm. She uh, is a, a profound intellect. I think she's um, she's at one of the California schools, but look up Wendy Brown on neoliberalism. Okay. She is a student of Sheldon Wolin. Sheldon Wolin uh, is also uh, the teacher of Chris Hedges, who's one of the very top pol- sociopolitical uh, critics of the present. And uh, they never, neither of these have ever steered me wrong in terms of their perception and their critique. I use a lot of quotes from Wendy Brown in my Money, Power, and Art article because they're so instructive on how this neoliberal ideology Mm -hmm, has, mm -hmm. you know, not consciously, but just infused itself, marinated this culture in every aspect of, of how it operates. And maybe... The reason I feel it so acutely is because I'm also from a time in the pre-neoliberal era Mm -hmm. where there's a memory and a history that can't be revised. Let's, uh, if you've lived it, you can't revise it because you know it's real. You know that there was a time when the the arts were supported as a basis of self-development and human expression, that that was a meaningful social connection, that there was a time when there was a social space for a middle class to flourish and to have a social good supplied by the government. You know that that was real. Yeah. And the neoliberal agenda is one that is a lot like Orwell's statement. He who owns the past owns the present Mm -hmm. and the future. In other words, if you can rewrite the past to conform to your vision of the present, this is what uh, revisionism is. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, what this is how the Stalins operate. This is how. This is why uh, groups like the Heritage Foundation, Heritage, the pay, dark money groups, it's all, pay, all revisionism. Pay, pay authors to churn out books that that reform or reformat mm-hmm. history via a right wing perspective. Yeah, uh, yeah, actually, an extremist, yeah. libertarian, corporatist uh, perspective. Yes. Yeah, you know, I mean, you can speak about a conservative from you know yeah. the the '60s. That's not the same as a conservative from uh, the, the 2000s. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. the, the, the neoliberal agenda is, is a true ideological agenda, mm-hmm. as well as it, it, along with the economic form. And I really highly recommend reading Wendy Brown because she breaks it down in very readable, understandable terms. And you begin mm-hmm. to understand the manipulation of the language and the Orwellian aspect of the revising yeah. of the history. And how, how that's been propagated through the dark money networks. Reading Jane Mayer's Dark Money is one of the best books you could possibly read to understand the present. Sounds like our listeners are going to have some uh, some homework to do. So we'll link to uh, to Jane Mayer, Wendy Brown, uh, Democracy at Work, which you you uh, uh, 
you mentioned yeah. earlier uh, on mm-hmm. the uh, in the first segment, uh, Yanni Saruchus, because I, he's a brilliant artist, and I, and I think people would would benefit from knowing his work. And also Diane Thodos. Diane Thodos is an internationally renowned artist. Her website is dianethodos.com. Thank you so much. This yeah, and, and also I, I'd mention if you guys want to read any of my articles, you go to my website, dianethodos.com, and I uh-huh. have a blog spot. Yes, you do. And and I post all uh, the stuff that I write for the New Art Examiner on there. And I really try to put my heart into that. I'm from a family of teachers. Mm-hmm. That's part of my critical consciousness. Uh, Godonald Cuspit was a very brilliant influence to me. Mm-hmm. Well, Big part of my formation as an art critic and writer as well. You certainly threw your heart into this discussion. So thank you so, so much. I'd like to thank Diane Thodos for being my guest today. And thanks to all of you. Listen to uh, links to Diane's site uh, where you can see her wonderful work uh, and read her full piece, The Money, Power, and Art. Please subscribe to this podcast. Until next time, thank you so much. We close with a song called Unkindness of Ravens by Cosmic Bull. To dangle my feet in the water so sweet and revitalized And I'll be driving my car, doesn't matter how far to realize it To where we broke ground In a place no one had found Now that everyone knows to our people it shows where the prize is
Like we do every day, it's how we're faded. <laughs> 